0: Hello and welcome back to the Great Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I am so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with acclaimed author Ali Smith on the artists she discusses in her recent seasonal quartet. Pauline Bote in autumn, Barbara Hepworth in winter, Tasta Dean in spring and Lorenza Mazzetti in summer. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri jewellery, a collection inspired By Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www.alighieri.co.uk, and just for our listeners, they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week, their founder, Rosh Batani, will be giving us an insight into Alighieri, and I hope you enjoy this very special episode. I'm so excited to let you all know that our new collection, The Many Moons Ago, is now available to purchase on alighieri.co.uk. I wanted to tell you a little bit about one of my favourite pieces from the collection, the Lunar Rocks earrings. In the second circle of Dante Alighieri's Paradiso, the poet arrives in the magical sphere of the moon, where light and serenity abound. After months of darkness, the Many Moons Ago collection looks to the light of this lunar sphere. The rocky texture of these hoops are a depiction of the moon's surface, little craters immortalised in time. The terrain of the moon, whilst uneven and craggy, is an ode to the beauty of imperfection. The lunar rocks hoops are designed as an everyday reminder to embrace the difficult moments and the light that they often do bring. Hello everyone and welcome to The Great Woman Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the greatest writers living today, Ali Smith. (laughs) Dear me. Born in Inverness, Scotland, and now based in Cambridge, Ali Smith is acclaimed for her fictional work and non-fictional writing on some of my favourite artists. The author of Public Library and Other Stories, How to Be Both, Shire, Artful, There But For The, The First Person and Other Stories, Girl Meets Boy, The Accidental, The Whole Story and Other Stories, Hotel World, Other Stories and Other Stories, Like and Free Love. She has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, the Orange Prize, the Man Booker Prize, and has won the Bailey's Prize, the Goldsmiths Prize, and the Costa Novel of the Year Award for her brilliant, novel novel how to be both but the reason why we are speaking with Ali Smith today is because she has recently completed a series of four standalone novels grouped as the seasonal quartet the books titled autumn winter spring and summer were written in the space of four years between 2016 and 2020 and track and a witness to sometimes in real time some of the most unprecedented and extraordinary events in living history Beginning with Autumn, known as the first post-Brexit novel, the final book in the series, Summer, was written in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And why I couldn't be more delighted to be speaking with Ali today is because the spine of each of these books is a female artist. Pauline Boty in Autumn, Barbara Hepworth in Winter, Tasta Dean in Spring, and filmmaker Lorenzo Mezzetti in Summer, who in their own way, as presences, people, spirits, all their work, interweave into each story so beautifully. Ali Smith, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I am fine. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Katie, for that incredible introduction, which has made me feel as small as a mouse. <laughs> Looking at a mountain, a Dean mountain at that, because um, <laughs> there just isn't none, none of that even is like what it's really like just to sit down, and with a blank thing in front of you, or with something that you've tried to write and you know hoped it will make something in the end. So you know, I'm, I'm definitely not here as an art critic. <laughs> and, uh, I'm here as someone who bounces off images and who knows the nourishment and the gift of understanding and curiosity and existence that they give us
0: absolutely so thank you Ali so much for coming on today I can't tell you what an honor it is to speak with you
1: as you can uh... (laughs) if if they if they knew about what what we what we just did before we started this podcast (laughs) no one will know no one will know about about the the technological mountain that we climbed (laughs) or that you climbed with me on your back Uh, to even get online. Great, thank you Katie for asking me to be on this podcast which I'm so chuffed
0: that you did. Thank you. Oh no, honestly, thank you so much. I mean, as you can probably tell I've enjoyed your writing for a number of years but in addition to this it is your writing on artists which I've been captivated by. I mean, what I love is how alive you bring artists as though they are a character which draws people to their work so vividly. They are and were humans just like us and they lived a life just like us but I've noticed when reading about artists by authors, especially you, is that you see elements of their work that no one else sees and by interweaving it into your stories I find it filters into our everyday life so impactfully and suddenly I can't unsee things so now when I see a cloud or a mountain I think of Tastadine or something solid and divine I think of Hepworth immediately it's the way that you can take art out of the gallery and bring it to life and maybe that's just me I don't know but before we get into the artists who you discuss in the quartet I'd love to start off by asking you what attracts you to writing about the lives of artists? Artists.
1: When I started writing, trying to write How to Be Both, although there's been art in, all, in my books since the very first, since the beginning, and particularly since two girls steal a, a painting in my very first novel, just steal it, just take it out of an art gallery and put it in a field, it's something about that, about art in the real, that has always attracted me. And not just art in the real, but the structures of the real being the structures of real art and the structures that are real in art. In other words, when I started thinking, okay, I I really, really want to write a book that looks at visual structure. How can I do that? How can you make take a book which is made of words, which also looks at the visuals of structure and the structure of the visual? And I was working in an Amnesty International bookshop at the time, you know, one of the secondhand bookshops, and um there kept coming in this catalogue of Italian frescoes that had been damaged in the floods in the 1960s, and at this point they had found a way to take those frescoes off the walls off the walls, the walls which they actually were, to actually take a bit of wall out of a wall so that you could restore it. And so they took these frescoes off by this kind of leather and glue, which meant that they could remove these frescoes to restore them. Because they were all removed off the walls, and then they could send them around the world, for God's sake, you could actually take something which was stuck in its place and send it out into a field around the world if you wanted. That just fascinated me and excited me. But the other thing that excited me was that when they took the frescoes, which had been there for all those hundreds of years up and down Italy, but particularly in Florence, where the floods were off the walls, they found underneath these first versions of the frescoes. And the first versions were sometimes like the frescoes, exactly the same, and sometimes slightly different and sometimes completely different. There would be new people in them that weren't in the finished fresco, but had been there all along underneath. So I began to think about the ways in which two structures, a surface and an under, an under and a surface, work together together. And so that what is it that we're seeing when we see a surface of something? Because we can't see through the surface. Do we know how to see through a surface? Do we ever think how to see through a surface? And it began to strike me that it was a very novelistic structure in itself. The greatest novels are the ones which tell a story, but don't tell a story at the same time, so that as you are reading them, you can feel the skin of the untold thing pressing through the surface of that novel. I think. There's always an untold story in a story, and that's what we're drawn to while we're drawn to the surface story. So that's where How To Be Both came from. It was the notion of how you tell what came first, how time is, how dimension works, how there can be a story beneath the surface that was there first. And that revelation of that. You know, the, the artist Francesco del Cosa, who was an artist, there was almost nothing known about it. There is almost nothing known about it, except that this person, Francesco del Cossa, wrote a letter to a duke when he was working on a place called the Palazzo Schifanoia, He said he thought his pictures were better and he should be paid more and his colours were better and he was better practised and he read more and he was more of an artist. Therefore, should he be paid more? Now, this happens to be the first proof of an artist asking for his or her worth. Yeah, yeah in, that we have. And I'm saying his or her because as I looked more at Delcosa's images, I began to wonder if Delcosa had been a woman. And I began to wonder if the Renaissance was peopled with women dressed as men who were artists in a kind of liminal space between male and female, who, because they were talented in a particular way. And I thought this because of the ways in which what looked like self-portraits in the particular Palazzo Schiffenau frescoes that this artist did fluctuate between male and female. And also the ways in which this artist treats women, in the strength this artist gives them, the extraordinary posture and determination and physical presence that he gives the women in his pictures, her pictures. Who knows? So then I was, if you like, looking at the doubleness and the the unders and the overs of how society has treated artists who have happened to be women uh, over the centuries. Was that the, I think is at the back of Of everything I've ever written. Yeah. And so was art
0: something that you were always interested in growing up at all? Or did it come to you later in life?
1: I don't think so. I had an early Roman Catholic upbringing, as all my siblings did. And what I remember first imagining as a vision of God was a picture we had on the wall, which was a Woolworths print of a bluebell wood. And we'd look at it and it was a a cheap picture that my mum bought and really loved. And I loved it too. It's a long blue lane into a white shape at the bottom through an avenue of trees. And the white shape at the bottom, I always thought, I wonder if that's the soul. I wonder if that's what that is. That Because we kept being told about this thing at school. So those pictures that we had in the house when I was a kid, my mum and dad were very proud that they had a couple of real paintings rather than prints as well. I mean, they they, they were busy working people, my mum and dad, but we had a picture of a road and the road looked muddy like roads do. And we had a picture of Loch Ness with Urquhart Castle on the side of it, and Urquhart Castle, you could tell it was Urquhart Castle, except it wasn't Urquhart Castle, it was kind of like if Urquhart Castle had been made of ice and left out to melt. Therefore, there was a different Urquhart Castle possible, because you could see something else was possible in a picture, which was also real, right? There was a connection to reality, which was a different reality, Yeah. of a road which had a mud colour, which made it, a, again, a liminal place, where something else is possible. I think that's where I first came to it. And then, you know, as I was coming into my teenage years, um, my first love was an artist. So when we bummed around together, we went to things. and My whole life opened. But when I was first out in the world as a kind of independent person, it just opened and opened to me. And we went to the Fringe when I was about 17. And I saw an exhibition of Laurie Anderson's work in installation. Oh, wow. And there's a, a desk in which you can place your... Elbows and put your hands on your head, and that vibration went through you, that made you think of thinking, and it made you think of energy, and it made you think of electricity. And you, you know, you could sit and do this thing. And there was a film on the wall, which had, you know, in those old films, there would be a calendar, and it would the dates would flick around on the calendar, and you would know it was the future. Okay, so in Laurie Anderson's version of that, the dates flick around and the camera pulls back, and the old old dates are on the floor. <laughs> 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 you know, and I remember that as an immense moment of understanding. And then from then on, you know, as I say, I'm nowhere near a real art critic. I really am just a bouncer off of images who knows how much they give me, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, like I said earlier, you know, these artists really are the spine of stories. I mean, how do artists and their work help you make sense of a story?
1: Um, Because they help you make sense and they help you make senses, your senses, and they give you back at every level. Your senses alive again to yourself. I mean, wherever you stand, in front of, or are present with, or read, a piece of art, or a piece—you know, all the arts—or or or whenever you attend to anything that is a piece of art, you attend. Number one, you're there. You're actually there, and you're attentive. And something in you has been wakened to it, even if you're having an argument with it, even if you really dislike it, even if you're in the presence of something that has made you furious. My dad used to take me to, you know, when we, when we met up in his late, latter years, we would always go to the art galleries, wherever we were, because he liked to argue with me, you know, so he would stand in front of something and go, what's that supposed to be? And I would get furious. <laughs> so, so, so we have in it a dialogue immediately where we are present to it and it is present to us. And there's something in the air which is wordless and at the same time asks articulation. So all those things happen as soon as you're present to art. All the thinking, all the renewing of our senses happens immediately. And it doesn't matter what kind of art it is, it doesn't matter what yeah. form it takes. I think my favourite forms are the ones that go between the forms. Yeah. There's no borders between the forms. Of course.
0: I think that's such an interesting way of putting it because now in your books, it's like they're a sort of presence, they're a spirit, they were something mm-hmm. and they were made by hands, you know, and, and then, you know, I don't know, it's a total revelation what you just said, basically. <laughs>
1: well, I love what you said about the spines, about those artists in these books being the spines of the books because that's exactly what they are. They are physically something to do with the structure yeah. of the making of whatever it is that the story is and they are absolutely in the bone structure of it. I mean, why would we, we would imagine picking up a book anyway that it isn't, anything actually that isn't organic I mean a book is particularly organic because it's based on the bindings of books I wonder if you've heard me say yes this before. I oh my goodness the bindings of books are made <laughs> based on the the skin of the animal that the binding was originally taken from which is why it has a spine because that's where the spine of the animal was in the bend where you could bind yes. things and then bind them inside the skin which would keep the paper or the whatever it was they were written on things which had been made from trees and written on with ink from creatures and plants you know, we could not get anything more organic, really, than a, than a book. And then when I was researching Francesca del Cosa and read up about the makings of paints, the makings of colours, we know how organic they are. We know what comes from eggs and what comes from beetles and what comes from plants and what which plants makes what colour. And, you know, the lives of the creatures which have gone into the makings of colours, <laughs> yeah. which in fresco are still as fresh as they were when, you know, that egg was laid, really, practically... Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh, I feel like I've just learnt sort of so much in five minutes. But
1: I mean, with this seasonal quartet I mentioned in the introduction, the artists
0: who you reference, I mean, did you know that you were going to explore these particular artists before embarking on the
1: novel? I did not even know that there'd be artists in the books. I mean <gasps> when I started with a book called Autumn, I thought it would just be Keats, John Keats, you know, because of the poem to Autumn, which is a poem that changed everything, that was one of the one of the great lyric Poems that shifted poetry. And Keats, coming from a class which poets weren't supposed to uh, exist in, changed those things too, as he did in his short lived electric life. So while I was thinking about that and I was flicking one day just by chance through a copy of the Freeze, I came on a tiny, tiny reproduction of Pauline Bote's Colour Her Gone. Yeah. Tiny, I mean, the size of my little finger, you know, and looking at it, thinking, what on earth is that amazing picture? It's Marilyn, but it's not just Marilyn. It's called "Color Her Gone," not "Color Him Gone," which is the original line from the Candor and Ebb song, yeah. which is called "My Coloring Book," which is what that line comes from. Who is Pauline Boty? Nineteen sixty-two. Who Who is that? Oh, yeah, I, I had a vague memory that I knew there was a, an artist called Pauline Boty. I looked at more of these pictures, which I, and I, the, the picture of Marilyn had really caught my eye because it was part abstract, part figurative, as if figurative is meeting abstract. Yeah. And so I looked up more pictures by Pauline Booty and wondered why on earth did this all stop at 1966? What on earth happened? Did she just stop painting? And then I read about her life, which is a, an incredibly tragic thing. A young death and then an aftermath of other tragedies attached to this artist whose pictures, as I looked at them, gave off life, 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 even in reproduction on a screen, you know? And when it's doing that on a screen... If you saw the real thing, my God, the difference. And that's true about Boaty. When you see the real thing, it's fine seeing it in reproduction. When you see the real thing, it's like your eyes have been reopened and your brain has been recalibrated. So I looked at the story of Boaty and I thought, but that's so like the thing I've been thinking about Keats, which is that there's this electric thing in life, which if you open a letter of Keats's, life comes off that letter in a way that you know Keats never died, right? And I thought it was the same with Boti, but I was beginning to think about writing Autumn, awesome, and I thought, well, it's so sad, the story of this woman. This was the beginning of 2016 and the books I had said to my publisher that I would write would all be written very fast and it was a kind of a game, really, to write these books really fast. Yeah. And I thought, no, this is too sad a story, but this artist is extraordinary. I can't stop thinking about it, but no, I'm going to put it to one side and I went back to the drawing board of a story I thought I was going to write. And then the Brexit vote started to happen around us and... This notion of lies being told in Parliament and lies being told to us all, across the board, was somehow not just in the air, but in our lives and in our pockets and right up against us. You know, in every screen we held in our hands. And then I chanced on another picture by Booty, which was of Christine Keeler. A, a picture which had disappeared when she, yeah. she had been commissioned to make a picture of Christine Keeler, which she made a couple of versions of, both of which are really interesting when you hold them together, because one is one version of Keeler, another is another. And in all of them, she's making versions of Keeler that nobody has ever seen, even though they look familiar. It's extraordinary, Bodhi. She takes an image you think you know, like that famous Arne Jacobson chair image of Christine Keeler sitting nude, leaning over the chair. When she paints that picture, she goes to a couple of frames away from that picture so that what you see is different and something in your brain, even though that picture had been seen a million times by all the millions of people, is not the same as the one that you think you've seen. So something again calibrates and asks a question as you look at them as you think you know when Bote paints it, latterly. Anyway, that painting, of course, disappeared completely. But there I was thinking, my God, look at Bote making something of the contemporary, daring to do that thing in a way that just is stunning. Where's that picture now? God knows, but looked at it, it is now when you looked at it. <laughs> Even in the reproductions, you know, next to which is usually standing, leaning on, you know, with her elbows. So you see how big that painting is that she's made of Kehler. A painting of a woman's centre of the stage, with up above her that border of the men's faces who had made the story of Kehler, which Bhoti has taken slightly shunted to the side so we know it's not the story that we were being told. So that happened, I was like, lies in Parliament, the Profumo scandal, lies in Parliament now. Okay, that sent me off to read Keeler. that sent me off to read more and think more about Booty, and then Booty was just in the voice of the book. And it was like the book, I can't describe it any other way, had been graced by her spirit. And if, I mean, if I thank God for anything, my life is that that thing happened, because her spirit, regardless of the stuff that happens to us in our lives, is never going to not be the astonishing shock of energy and sheer immortality of the art she made even though it was so fragile and lost to us and then found to us again all of it held in the energy that still comes off her work now regardless of those years that have passed regardless of what happened in a life or in a parliament or in a country or in whatever those images give off life
0: Absolutely. It's the spirit of being in the presence of them. And actually, when you are in the presence of them, they transport you back to that time. I and mean, even the way that she plays with the bulletin board, she plays with magazines, mm-hmm. commercialization, but also the politically tense times, the Cuban Missile, yeah. the rise in pop. I mean, what I found so fascinating is this sort of collage. It's this amalgamation of everything. Mm-hmm. And then I was reading your book. And the fact that your book has also created that there's such politically tense time, and it is kind of all these collages of references together. I mean, how did the collage nature, if at all, of Boaty's work inform this novel?
1: There is no question that it did. Again, it's the gift of it. There is no question that those happenings, that coming together of the times and the art allowed me the breadth to make something juxtapositionary, which allows us to see beyond time at the same time as see where we are which is exactly what she did. Extraordinary, though, that what she did with collage was that she didn't actually make collage, she painted collage. She made, yes. She, I mean, that just blows my mind, yes. even You're now. completely right, yes. I just realised. <laughs> she, 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 what, she, what she did was she looked at what collage form was and then she made an art form of it. <laughs> you know, yes. Not just of collage, which she made. I mean, I'll, I'll just turn my computer to your wall. People can't see it, but my wall is covered in pictures. Like, I mean, I know booty covered walls in pictures. She made collage around her in her structures that she lived in. So she understood life itself as a collage, and then she made an art form. (laughs) You know, she made a unique thing of images, which were millions and millions and millions of images. I mean, what are we supposed to do in a time where the images come at us, and we are in this time now, in a way that our species has not known until now? I mean, in the 1960s, they began to think they'd never known it like that, and that was all those years ago now. And we are in a time where we are bombarded by image. And Boti at every point says, what is that image? Let's just look more carefully at that image. Let's just, if we paint that image, what happens? If we make that image an art form, we make art of that image. What does that art tell us? So that sense of being able, having the confidence to take what's right in front of you. I mean, Boti, I think not just that her life ended so soon and the sadness around it was terrible. One of the reasons that people, I think, didn't understand what to do with it was because it did that. It went so directly to a thing that was really in everybody's faces but nobody knew how to look at when you look at it's a man's world one and it's a man's world two and you think that those two paintings are so brilliant then but they're so right up against it's like your nose is up against the glass that flashes you, almost yeah and reality and what it asked of people it, in a man's world it's a man's world too to be presented with a series of pornographic images with a torso at the center which was not pornographic what that said at the time you know it was already blowing people's minds to have seen those pornographic images which were you know replete and she knew it and at the same time to be asked the question about what a body actually is what is a body what is a woman's body what is a woman's body when you see it in these narratives and then you see it in this torso which is utterly beautiful utterly plain utterly unadorned just there in front of you oh she's brilliant so those questions, all of those questions, I was bloody lucky to have her anywhere near me writing Autumn. And I think her appearance in the book, her voice even, because her voice is available to us in on Ken Russell's film.
0: And the interview with Nell Dunn.
1: The interview with Nell Dunn, which Dunn records absolutely verbatim. So you sense everything, all the hesitancy and the confidence in Boaty and the intelligence.
0: But it's also the presence, which I think, again, I mean, I read your book in, when it first came out, but also rereading it now. And it's so fascinating to think that actually 2016 does feel like this lifetime ago. Mm. What's Brexit now? I mean, compared to the year that we've had. Mm. And this idea that she calls things a nostalgia for now. Mm. I mean, she says it's almost like painting mythology, a present day mythology film stars. And actually, you know, even though your book felt so present then, it now feels so distant because the world just constantly changes and changes and changes. I mean, it's, it was such a sort of fascinating artist that, you you subconsciously I don't know consciously chose
1: and just looking back at that it just it feels remarkable so when you put something which is utterly contemporary into a story form something ancient happens yes and and I think it's much the same as what Boti was doing with painting when you put something utterly contemporary into painted form something ancient happens and you can see what it is and you can see it in context and you can see it in time and you know it's contemporary because there it is being so utterly contemporary at you and at the same time you know it contextualizedly dimensionally you know the surface that we all live on at the moment she knew about surface she knew how to open the eyes by putting a red and a green together so that a surface does more than that it goes directly into the brain and opens the brain opens everything so white, kind of whitewashes the brain so you can see again when you look at the only blonde in the world and your brain is washed by those colors and you see again when she understood that that's what art can do which is that it renews the thing that we think we understand have seen for a moment a flash of a moment and yet something in us comes towards it with this other knowledge this knowledge of something else what is what is it that's gone into the making of that image where does that image come from what does image mean and then we get dimensionalized that's all yeah yeah
0: <sighs> But I love this moment when Elizabeth, the protagonist, is looking through a book on Pauline Bote. And actually, first of all, I should say the first book in the series, Autumn, chronicles the relationship of Elizabeth, a lecturer at university and her elderly neighbour, Daniel Gluck. And it's Daniel who introduces the role of Pauline Bote to the book in a great flashback scenes when I think she's about eight years old or something. And her mother is furious after she starts reciting Pauline Bote's painting, It's a Man's World and saying, you know, what the hell are you looking at? But later... Later on the book, we see her flicking through a catalogue of Boaty's work and you write, it was a sad story and nothing like the paintings, which were so witty and joyous and full of unexpected colour and juxtapositions that Elizabeth, flicking through the catalogue, realised that she was smiling. I mean, how does Boaty's brief but fruitful life correspond to the significance of autumn? Did you think about that?
1: Yeah, there was no getting away from it. And if you're going to sum up autumn, and I was saying about Keats. And you think what autumn is, it's the harvest. It's the point at which the ripeness happens. It's the point at which delivers the summer. The winter closeness, the spring opening, the summer richness has delivered into an ultimate richness, the harvest. And it's that short and it's that brief and it's that colourful. And that leaf as it's coming off the tree and its last kind of fling, as it were, has become the most astonishing colour that you can imagine. And the, the thing about bodhi's life, the briefness, the... Endless richness, which will come round again and again and again and again. Those are the things which struck me about how it was going to be that we knew the briefness of the, the time, but God, what richness! And you go back to it again, and God, what richness again, you know, God, what richness again. The joy in Bhoti. You know, the other thing about Bhoti, which is extraordinary to me, is that she was a lost artist to us and only just found for us, rediscovered by, you know, David Dalmer and Sue Tate, and the work they did finding the pictures and restoring the pictures to a culture which they made possible. They made that possible. Sue Tate's writing about Oti. Thank God for Sue Tate for doing the work, which has found for us an artist we need and always will need as we are shunted up against the surface of our own lives and the, the fastness of them. Yeah. And also the way she was lost and the way she was discounted and the way that she was that... Singular woman at the core of take that Ken Russell film, uh, the Monitor film he made, and Pop goes the easel. Pop goes the easel. What an extraordinary film it still is because of Booty. <laughs> I mean, it's, <laughs> great, yes. it's great to see Blake. Totally. It's great to see Phillips. It's great to see Boucher, <laughs> and then you have this dream world that Booty drops us into in that film. She's just.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I find so interesting about then kind of going into the second book, which is not exactly mm. a continuation of Autumn, is you know you don't just switch to Winter, but to Hepworth, mm. and I can't help but think of the sort of differences between Botey and Hepworth, their personalities, and their recognition. Hepworth, obviously the titan of British art scene, and Pauline's work was like you said was found in an outhouse in 1993, 30 years after her death. I mean, Bote captures the fleeting, transitory nature of life, the opposite. Hepworth, who is solid, earthy, lived a long life. She died in her 70s from a fire in mm. her Cornwall studio from smoking a cigarette. I mean, why bring Hepworth in after Bote and what does Hepworth represent that corresponds to Winter?
1: The first thing that happened when I tried to start writing Winter, because you, you just have no idea, you think you're going to write something and then it just won't do it. You know? <laughs> but the first thing that happened was that there was a woman who could not see properly because there was a round thing in her eye. Except that she could see properly because there was a round thing in her eye. So she had to reckon with the round thing. What was it? Was it an actual moat in her eye? Was it something in? Was it a a visual disturbance thing? No, she began to see it as a literal round thing, like a stone or a head. And it takes the form of a child's head just floating about as she goes about her every day. I mean, she's in a kind of winter because she's folded into herself but there's something pulling her out of the winter that she's folded into herself as we find out in the book and it is this this vision of something which is like a, just the head of a child or and as we go through the story of that winter for her it becomes more and more just simply a round piece of stone and I couldn't get away from the vision of Hepworth in that I had no idea that there would be artists in these books after Bote, but then <laughs> that struck me that this was a Hepworth vision and that it was something to do with how we place ourselves in the world how the world insists on placing us too, and reminding us that we are made of it one of the gifts of Hepworth is that whatever you look at in a landscape it kind of belongs like it's always belonged in the landscape and I don't know how she's ever done yeah. that but you looked at it and you think that just looks like it was always there partly because it was a standing stone therefore ancient partly just because it was a stone that landed and has a hole in it. And then you go towards it and you realise how placed the hole is so that you can see inside stone for the first time. You can actually see what stone is made of or wood is made of in its centre, as if someone threw light into the core of matter and let you see the inside of matter. And at the same time, that Hepworth is a great speaker about her own art. And she one of the things she pointed out quite early on in one of her interviews or in her writing about what the sculpture she made and the things she made was that with a sculpture, there's no fixed point. That you move all the time around it, therefore it's always moving too. So there's nothing fixed in place, which also was a gift to this woman in this book who's so fixed that she is just nearly dead. But she isn't, because she's not fixed because there's something moving around her all the time that makes her move. So there was Hepworth immediately in a book about a stripped back landscape. I couldn't get away with it from it. You know, I wasn't sure I would get away with it either. <laughs> <laughs> because I never knew about a will, but I couldn't get away from it. It was a gift of landscape and a gift of, again, the modern and the ancient. And also, do you know, that thing you said about Hepworth being so known, I had just, before I wrote Winter, I'd been up to visit uh, an exhibition in Hepworth Wakefield and um, met Eleanor Clayton, the curator there, and she had shown us a portrait of Hepworth, which had been painted in her girlhood by Ethel Walker, who, at the time of her painting, Ethel Walker was massively famous, and so you have this painting of a young woman and someone had bought it on eBay because he liked looking for <laughs> pictures and he pictures, picking up paintings. Great taste. I know, great taste. He, he picked up a painting of, uh, said on the back, portrait of the young Miss Hepworth. And he, so he looked up Hepworth, didn't know who the young Miss Hepworth might be. He couldn't recognise Barbara Hepworth from it. Looked it up to see and wrote to the museum that he found online to see if it was anything to do with this painting of his. <laughs> How could you not know Hepworth? Right? How could you not know? And that's the question that came up. If you don't know Hepworth, you don't know Boaty, but there's all sorts of reasons for us having lost Boaty off a landscape for a while and, thank God, getting her back. If you don't know Hepworth, what does that bode? (laughs) You know, that story just held everything in context for me, that the artist who has understood the universe, the planetary shift that happened in that last century, you know, between the first, the second, and then afterwards, world wars, and then afterwards, the nuclear proliferation and the ways in which we moved out to colonize planets and Hepworth knows the planetary as well as she knows a tiny pebble. I mean she knows that those two are connected. She knows that the tininess of the curve on a pebble is connected to the curve on the moon is connected to the curve of all the things we we can't see unless we've got a telescope and we you know are working out how to see and how to understand our universe. She understands those connections. God you know if that knowledge goes we what on earth will we do, you know? But it's also the kind of humanness
0: of her work as well. And actually, you know, first of all, also, I was wondering, because obviously it's a very political book and you talk about the women on the Green in common. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was then looking into maybe she was this kind of Hepworth reincarnated because Hepworth was this incredibly political figure mm-hmm. during her lifetime, which I had no idea until recently. Why don't we know that? Yeah. Why don't we? <laughs> you know, how don't we? Yeah. It's it's mad. There's this fantastic quote from Barbara Hepworth that says, I can't be unpolitically minded. I'm very involved, just as I was in the 30s during the Spanish War. I was involved in the industry in my own hometown. I was involved in the distress and the strikes. I wasn't marching, but I was involved through my work. Mm -hmm. But but it's the way that I guess what happened with me is I read Hepworth in a different context to what I would usually read her in. Mm -hmm. And it's the power of putting Hepworth out of the gallery and
1: into daily life that suddenly you meet a whole new side of her. I know. What a great thing. The hearing of her voice because Hepha's voice is so clear. It rings out like clear air. And, I mean, she, she had seen the First World War. She had seen the Second World War. She knew what culture meant, in a way, that had had to be pulled out of war, you know, twice. And then she's, she's left going, art, she says, she says at one point, there's a universal language. And she says, if we do not use this universal language, then what are we doing? She says, um, the only language which nations can speak together and they don't quarrel. Art. Oh, yes, of course. And yet in times of stress and war, the tiny grant which the state provides to maintain the visual arts is the first to go, she said. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> she, she understood that if politics doesn't want us to think, then it will, first of all, take all the, the backing away from, from art. Because the, the ways in which we are able to think, the ways in which we are able to open, the ways in which we are able to be dimensional beings in the world, <laughs> is via our understanding of that universal language, that thing which transcends borders. Art.
0: But it's also the human scale that, although these are sort of grand ideas, they're grand themes, it's all done within our periphery Mm -hmm. and also gives us that whole, gives us that organicness and mistakes
1: almost Mm -hmm. to kind of work through. (laughs) I mean, the other thing about Hepworth is that something about piercing through things and allowing us to see differently and allowing us to imagine ourselves as full of holes. In other words, a different kind of breathing. And then the way she used strings across those holes to suggest that even our muscle systems and our gut systems inside us kind of call to these moments where a void has been stringed. (laughs) You know, the connecting force in what Hepworth understood in something which was abstract but not abstract, something which was symbolic but actual every time, something which was right there in front of us. You could knock on it. It was that solid and yet it was a symbol of everything around us and how we live and who we are. The way in which she goes right to the gut and right the way out in that, those connective strings to the universe, to the planet, to the ways that thoughts work like music. You look at Hepworth and you are re
0: it's so interesting that you included her in this book because also, have you visited the Hepworth Sculpture Garden?
1: Do you mean the, the, the garden in her, her studio? St. Ives. Oh yeah. no, I've been to St. Ives. That, that garden is just, you could not choose a more perfect place to refine yourself.
0: What's so interesting is that Hepworth, more than any other artist, because of this garden, I have seen her in every single season. And what's incredible about her work is that in every single season, it is completely different. So, you know, in the sort of blistering heat of August, you get that really sort of dry surface and long shadows and then you know with the freezing rain in February and some of the sculptures actually have pools of water and then you have reflections and then they're actually a completely different dimension because they've got water filled in them or then you know you see them in, in the snow and it's a whole other dimension and I thought that she more than any other artist reminded me of seasons and made us actually think about what art means in seasons
1: brilliant as I sat in the garden a man came out and filled the little hollow in one of the pieces with water You know, made sure that it was topped up. That's right. That's it exactly, which is that they've been left there exactly to remind us of the connections we make beyond ourselves at the same time. Because if you sit at one angle in that, garden you can see right the way through St Ives to one of the furthest sculptures on one of the furthest points in the town so there's no getting away from the town and there's no getting away from art and there's no getting away from the town and how art and the town are together and the act of being a community is kind of held cupped in the hands of Pepworth and at the same time (laughs) it's like the community has cupped her and allowed her art to live and then you wander through St Ives and you walk past the library and there in the window of the public library is a Hepworth just in the window and you go in and you look at the Hepworth and the librarian smiles at you and gives you a wave you know? <laughs> and it, you, you walk past the building there it is and then you walk up the road and you walk past the town hall and there's a kind of birdshot Hepworth outside it which has weathered <laughs> and has just and is just there and exactly the same as everything else on the street is there so that living in and with art that's in that studio, that beautiful studio in St Ives and that beautiful garden, the ways in which the garden and the art are the same, the ways in which the rain and the man topping up the rain is the same, (laughs) the ways in which if you live artfully, a community thing happens, which widens and connects, and if you live communally an art thing happens, which widens and connects it's like she just, she electrifies she sends energy through (sighs) everything civic and everything aesthetic at the same time which reminds you you can live artfully in fact you must
0: but I mean that idea of nature as well and Mm -hmm. her work being at one with nature and you're not really you know sure what is and what is not nature I thought was also especially present in spring I mean when you focus on Tastadine and in a similar way to winter her presence is also less about her life but perhaps more about her work and oh I should also add something I wanted to say but maybe this is bit off piece but actually what i was saying in the introduction about how i sort of don't unsee things and once i know that the story has hepworth as a spine i start seeing it in every single corner but that might be maybe my sort of subconscious thing where you know even when you talk about like the holes in the roof or something Mm -hmm. it just all so connected
1: well why would a hole in a roof not be the same as a hole in a hepworth i mean that's (laughs) that's kind of what hepworth does she she makes you she makes you re-see the holes she makes you re-see the spaces she makes you re-see what I mean, that's what art is really. It's a hole in a structure. It's so that you see a structure, you can see through a structure, you understand the structure, and you think, does that need mending, or actually, is it really nice to see light? You know. So it's that all those questions happen with Hepworth. She she allows us to understand what matters by letting us see matter. Yes <laughs> and yes. And and yes it is in everything. And everything in her landscapes and in her stones and her woods reminds us of the matter that we are, and why we matter, and what matters most. Yeah.
0: But I want to get into Testa Dean in spring, because like I said earlier, it's less about her life and more about her work, whereas Pauline Boty almost becomes a character in Autumn. The same as with Hepworth, where her work almost becomes something to view something through and making us look and feel matter. And so in spring with Testa Dean, some of the book is especially about this work called The Montafon Letter from 2017, which was first exhibited at the Royal Academy. And for those who haven't seen it, it is this incredible overwhelming and vast seven metre wide drawing named after the Montefon Valley in Austria set on nine blackboards joined together and it is a work that Richard, the lead character who was a filmmaker, visits in spring I mean, tell us about this work what were your reactions when you first saw it and how did it
1: make you feel? You know when, when in the book <clears throat> Richard's standing in front of the Montefon letter and, he, and there's a girl standing next to him and they both go, fuck me fuck me, me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, and is it fuck me or is it fuck me? I mean, cause both. <laughs> because you see that mountain that she has made, which is in avalanche, but the avalanche has been stilled for a moment so that you know that something awful is on its way, but yet has not happened and you've been given the chance to see it. That exhibition was just extraordinary. If you take the notion of how you mentioned Hepworth as being this kind of pivotal artist of the 20th century, and you think of Tastadine as the pivotal artist as we come into the 21st century, and you think about the precision with which she works, and the massive scale of the Montafon Letter, which is, when you look into the story of it, a story about disaster, which then sort of undoes disaster at the same time. So it's about an avalanche which buries a village, and then another avalanche which comes and buries more people, but then unburies other people by, you know, it's like there's some people come out of the Montafon Letter alive that wouldn't have come out of it unless there was another avalanche. And then you get close up to it and you see the chalk of it. I love that about Dean. I love her aliveness to everything. In my head, I've got a moment where she's writing about Kirchschwitter's Tracedadine. She's writing one of her curations um, earlier. She kind of collected some Kirchschwitter's painted stones. And one day she'd looked at a pile of stones and thought, why have I got these stones? So she took them out, she put them on the pavement outside her house and just left them in London, just on the pavement. And then the stones took on a really different context they just sat there and it was like they exuded a new meaning and that I love in Dean, which is that she is completely curious a curious open mind at every level what's this for what's this doing why is it here what what is it linking in in me which feels both you know kind of pointless and yet really meaningful it's been it's been in her film work from the start and it's in her film work right now because she wants to do something that's got chance built into it that's got blindness built into it and Dean asks something so simple and something so profound about how we make meaning both at the same time what does a pile of stones mean when it's just sitting on a pavement What does it mean if it's sitting in a bowl in a house what does it, you know what does it mean to pick up a stone what does it mean to see stilled for a moment an avalanche and you can stand in front of it and watch at the moment before it has fallen She's brilliant. I mean, she's she's a polymath, Dean. She just whatever she touches goes again dimensionally through time, forward and back, in a way which is revealing about our own traditions. You know, I mean, she as we came through those years in which the UK, Britain, is is redefining itself. She began to do those cloud pictures. One of which is at yeah. the back of Spring. Her father had died, and she had a Shakespeare concordance of his from his study. So she looked up every incidence of a cloud turning up in Shakespeare, and did one of those cloud pictures for each of the verbal instances of a cloud. And my English breath in foreign clouds is what the sequence of clouds is called. So what you see is structure that will fade, that is changing all the time. You are persuaded that things change all the time, that anything that seems to have a structure is going to dissipate. And yet there's... there is in front of you for a moment just held like that avalanche was and again you get the sense of total liberation from these pictures and yet something deep in Englishness itself and deep in English itself because of the ways in which she's using Shakespeare these little snippets of Shakespeare written beside these clouds moments and you know the fragility of the pictures when you see them and you can smell the slate and also the chalk that she's made them from, that there's a, there's a physical presence to these pictures. And yet you also know, if you followed Dean's work, that as a child, a young person, she wanted to try and catch clouds. She, one of her ambitions was to, was to try and have a cloud, collect a cloud, you know. <laughs> so she went up in the air to do that, found you couldn't do that, so instead she collected air. <laughs> and, then, and then she looked into the notions of what pure air was, what air was, what happens to make air not. So that everything about breathing takes place in the jeu d'esprit of Dean in a balloon collecting air in a bag and bringing it down again and the bag full of air there held in a room afterwards makes you think what is it why how do we breathe what is it we're breathing we can't even see it we're looking at a bag that seems to have nothing in it but has something in it that's it exactly she knows the nothing and the something of us.
0: I really, it was just so interesting to think about this book and this work as well at a time like this because also there was such notions of reflection as well and this idea of overpowering engulfing mesmeric celestial spring like clean sort of beginnings rebirth regeneration and where everything is falling down a bit like the world sort of falling down in front of us at the moment it's also just kind of still but there's also this idea of regeneration and fresh air as well
1: Mm. that's it exactly dean revivifies always and like i say dimensionalizes because she because something in her reminds you of time and reminds you of context and makes you think about i don't know how she does it she plugs into where we have always made meaning, regardless of what time we're living in. She understands yeah. how to get to that, that germ of understanding. Something about her sparks into that, matches it with the contemporary, so that we can see ourselves over time, and what we're doing, and our curiosity, and the ways in which we make meaning, or we use our intelligences um, in a really energetic, live, sparked, alive way. And I mean, it's interesting,
0: the idea, you know, first of all, Richard, the character who's going to see this is also a filmmaker and Dean is also a filmmaker and her works as well and mm-hmm. have this very filmic quality. Mm-hmm. But then I want to get on to... The Most incredible in my actually a discovery from your book, Lorenzo Mazzetti, who features in summer with just the most phenomenal story. I mean, I, I didn't know her work before and I didn't know her story before. And if I'm completely honest, I was most taken aback by her. And I've only been able to access one film, which is Together on the BFI website. So if anyone's listening, that's for free that you can go watch. But Tell us about Lorenza Mazzetti. What is her story? So she is The Spine of Summer, which is the most recent book.
1: Hey, oh, Lorenza Mazzetti. She's... Did you ever meet her? No. Oh, oh, no. It breaks my heart that I didn't. I have to say, and I honestly didn't know much about Mazzetti myself <clears throat> until the summer I finished spring. And a friend of mine called Paul Bailey said, you've got to read this book. It's called London Diaries by Lorenza Mazzetti. And I got a copy and I read it. And it's about this extraordinary filmmaker. But, and it's supposed to be an autobiography. But it's this this work of what is surrealism the 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 life of this woman she writes like nobody dares to write it's like it all kind of comes comes sensually sensorially out of her onto a page so that the past and the present and the future all held together and yet here's the life and the life is okay if we take it from the london (laughs) diaries, embrace yourselves (laughs) she arrives in london as An undesirable alien after the Second World War To help on farms And she's useless at helping on farms She's a young Italian And she's arrived from Florence And she can't do any of the stuff a farmer tells her to do So she gets herself to London And then, because she's an artist She does jobbing work here and there But she's an artist, Julie, she's a painter and she's So she takes her paintings and her drawings to the Slade And she just walks in And stands in the reception area of the Slade And says she wants to come to school at the Slade and they explain to her, you can't just come to school. Can't... At the slave. Yeah, you can't just come to school here. You've got to, you know, have exams and show us work and done the thing and, you know, have, have all these qualifications. And she says, no, I want to come here. And she doesn't won't go away. And then the woman who's speaking to her says, no, you must go away now. She says, I want to see the director and I want to come to this art school. <laughs> A man comes out of an office because she's shouting now, I want to see the director. <laughs> she's kind of flailing in the reception area. And um, the man comes towards her, he's in his shirt sleeves, and he says, why do you want to come to this school? And she says, because I'm a genius. So he says, "Okay, show me your work. And he takes her into the office, and she shows him her paintings and her drawings, and he says, "Okay, you can be a student here. So she's into this, she got into art school. Shortly after she gets into art school, she walks down the corridor, and she, this is all in London Diaries, she walks down the corridor, and there's a cupboard that says Film equipment on it or film club on it. She opens the door and there's all this film stuff. So she gathers up the friends she's made at art school and they all steal it. They take it all in bags one by one out of the building and they put it in her flat, in her lodgings. She's in in a lodgings room. And then they make a film called K, based on Kafka, because she loves Kafka. And she signs her name at the bottom of the form, which means that this film gets you know, Produced and paid for by the university she's at. In other words, the, the school she's at. And then she gets called into the office, and William Coldstream, the director, who is the person who said, Yes, you can be at the school. Yes, all right, I'll grant you this. Come on, be a student here. Says to her, You can't just sign things that we have to pay for <laughs> and say that you are the university. And she says, But I was making a film. So he says, Okay, well, this is against the law. You know, you could go to jail for this. Okay, what I'm going to do, William Coldstream sister, is I'm going to show this to all the students, and if they clap at the end, then I'm not going to charge you.
0: And the BFI director. Well,
1: on that day when he's showing the film, he arrives, Coldstream brings the director of the BFI and for him to come and watch the film too. And at the end of the film, all the students clap. So she gets to make films and not just gets to make films. She becomes one of the forming members of the free cinema movement here in the UK. And through them, which then goes to Cannes and is applauded and critically awarded that can but Mazzetti's film is like, like something else altogether there's nothing like it when you watch together you're like what just happened a film about two deaf mutes crossing a bombed out London and what happens to them in a the community to let's not say anything else about that film because it's really an extraordinary extraordinary poetic layered satirical understanding okay <sighs> at which point Mazzetti's become a filmmaker and she's an artist and she goes back to Italy and she begins to embrace her life before, which we now know nothing about. And she begins to understand how to articulate it. And she tells the story that happened to her in her childhood, which is that a small child, her mother has died, her father can't cope with her and her twin sister. Too many children, he's working, he can't cope with it. He gives them to one of his relatives, Nina, to look after. And Nina is married to a man called Robert Einstein. Robert Einstein is a cousin of Albert Einstein. So these girls, these these small twins, kind of lost in the world, end up in Tuscany, in the most beautiful setting, being brought up in a lovely house by lovely people, and it's the 30s, and the war starts to happen, and Robert Einstein is Jewish, and... The war goes as you imagine it does and Italy and Germany are at war towards the end of the war themselves. The Tuscany is flooded with Nazis and they turn up at the door one day looking for Robert Einstein because he's an Einstein. And he's run into the woods. He knew he'd be after them. So instead, they kill his wife and his two daughters. They do not kill the Mazzetti sisters because they are not called Einstein. They are in their teens, these girls. They're, they're kids, really. The cousins are slightly older, not much older, and the mother. And then <sighs> Lorenzo Mazzetti come and her sister come, you know, they come into the house and see the bodies of their family. And she is from this point on, as you would be, haunted by what has happened to her in a real and visceral and actual and familial way in the war. Robert Einstein comes back to the house, sees the death of his family, and shortly after he commits suicide too. So these young women now, these girls, um, are sort of left in the world. They're they're taken on by a a kind of godfather figure who then runs away with all their money (laughs) and leaves them destitute. And that's when Lorenzo Mazzetti crosses the world and comes as this person whose passport is stamped with undesirable alien as she arrives in England to help on farms. And then she becomes the filmmaker and the artist that she's always been an artist, but the filmmaker that she was. And for the rest of her life, which ended in January this year, dear God, in her 90s, Lenza Mazzetti. And that picture that's at the back of Summer, there's a, a self-portrait of her at the back of Summer, um, a, a painting of her walking towards us. Um, I found out after we asked for the copyright to use that picture on the back of the book that what she did in her latter years as well was she photocopied and photocopied and photocopied that painting and painted on top of it, which reminds me of Tassadatine, yeah, um, and then sold versions of it. <laughs> so when we sent for the, a photo of that picture or a, or a reproduction of that picture to put on the book, they sent us the wrong one, and I was looking at it thinking that isn't the same. It's the same, but it's not the same picture as the one. You which got a knockoff. I, yeah, I wanted, but we got we got an original work, as it were, a, a different original work. She re-originalised her own work, which is what she does in her writing, and yet all through this writing, and all through her films. And all through anything I've ever seen of hers, there is this sense that she knew of innocence, facing hell, utter destruction, and yet staying intact. I don't know how she does it, but she does it in her films. So the way in which Mazzetti questions everything makes you not blind, makes you have to take on board something. Because, how can you live with the knowledge? So, you've got the, the young Mazzetti, the teenage Mazzetti, wandering about down roads in Rome and Florence, everybody just wandering, having their evening walk, and yet she has seen murder and she is accompanied by ghosts and they are real. How do you live truly, honestly, with this knowledge and people not have that knowledge and people ignore that knowledge like it's not the truth? Isn't it? I couldn't live in calmness and boredom anymore. My hand has touched blood and tragedy and I know that while boredom was dozing, reality was preparing the apocalypse, she writes.
0: Well, thank you for introducing us to her work because it's just profound, and her story.
1: It's funny because, I mean, in all of these books there's been a question of, I didn't expect Boatheap to be there. I didn't expect Hepworth to be there. There's a question of, okay, so this seems to be a foothold on structure in these books. I'll go with it. There is clearly, obviously, all was supposed to be a Shakespeare involved in one of these books and a, yeah. and an artist who's a woman in these books as the spine, at, actually at the core, at the, at the structural core of the books. And with Summer, I was like, is it Frank? Because there's this, real militarism in her work okay. you know you think of those those, and there's real savagery and yet it looks ancient like Pompeii and you get the whole sense of the whole century and when she comes into her late work Frank then takes those round-headed men and she turns it into a non-gendered person with leaves coming out of it like a green person and you were like how did she pull that off how did she make that work there's something I thought is it Frank that's gonna that's gonna be at the back of this is it Mona Hatoum because of the century we've lived in the way that Hatoum knows how to Give us determination and a kind of chutzpah and a knowledge at the same time of the savage and the depersonalized. She she knows how to remind us of the human in the utterly depersonalized in a way which both rends us open and at the same time lets us know how we're being treated, how people are being treated, how people are being treated right now in the world. And yet there was no getting away from Mazzetti. The image, the image that kept coming back, coming back as I went towards summer, was an image from Kay of a man holding two suitcases, dancing along the ledge, running fast in a kind of dance along the ledge of a building, which is so high up that you cannot believe that he is doing it. And he's really still on that edge, which is tiny, narrow ledge, two heavy suitcases, moving at such a pace and it's with such grace that you cannot believe he's he's able to do it. She saw that, she knew that, she knew because of what life had dealt her, what Kafka meant. She knew what, metamorphosis meant she knew that metamorphosis in itself was a reminder to be alive to the changes to the ways that things do change to the ways in which we can be changed and we are changed by what affects us she understood it she understood it structurally she understood it organically what a great um image of the century and of our time right now that man on the edge carrying cases will he fall he is full of grace
0: and do you think that there is one thing that unites all these artists? (laughs) (laughs) A reflection, I guess it's probably been nearly a year since you finished writing.
1: You know, when I think of Boti and I think of Mazzetti and I think of when we look at Pop Goes Easily and when we look at the the Free Cinema programme, which, which Mazzetti was part of, I know that they are making other art. I know that they are making something with structures which confused and alarmed people when they saw them because they were so, what, alive? unsaid as yet unarticulated now I think about Hepworth and there's something which means that every work I've seen by Hepworth doesn't need a title it doesn't need that articulation because the articulation is something other it's something else it's something which you allows feel it us, yeah it's something, it allows us an other language which we have to now learn to speak and I feel the same about Dean which is that wherever we are with her she will ask us what things mean from matter to words you know, all the way. So there is something in all of these artists that asks what time, what us in time, what time and structure are, particularly when you are supposedly fixed. They unfix us, every one of them, they unfix us into something else so that we, in a world which wants us to be fixed, can dance along a ledge, right? So that in a world that wants us to be fixed, we'll open a hole in it in that fixity and make us move around it to see it so that in a world that's meant to be fixed, it has, a, has a fixed image, you will ask us to question the image. It's Boti, she asks you at every point to question the thing that you think you know and with Dean, everything in Dean makes us curious, reminds us of our curiosity and as anyone who's ever tried to bring up young animals will know, the one that's the least curious is probably the one that's not going to make it and the ones that are curious are the ones that are connecting and engaging alive. They bring us that connection, engagement and aliveness because they know that the world is made in a way that wants to fix them and they unfix it. And
0: coming back to sort of what you said earlier, the first thing you said was the presence of the art and that art will always be there. Yet we all move past it. We see it in different Mm -hmm. seasons. Mm -hmm. It remains there forever.
1: Yeah, thank God. Mm -hmm.
0: Ali Smith, thank you so much for this. (laughs) Just honestly, the most enlightening (laughs) conversation I've ever had on art. And just thank you. Your books are a gift to the world. And I urge everyone, if they haven't done so already, to read every single one of them. But it's the seasons for me that recently have just been so profound at this time more than ever as well. So as is the Great Women Artists Podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could meet one of these artists, who would it be and what would you say to them?
1: Boti, no question i want to meet Boti. i feel like i have met Boti actually and um there's a piece online by margaret drabble about meeting pauline Boti by chance oh. if you look up margaret drabble pauline Boti, guardian on the guardian site um she wrote a piece it's called the one that got away i think actually she went on the holiday i think it was rome and she was in a hostel and there was a woman standing washing herself in the the washrooms of the hostel margaret drabble's wearing a man's shirt and the woman in the washroom said I know I could be friends with someone who was wearing a shirt like that. <laughs> and then they spoke and they they spoke to each other and, and they had a conversation and they sort of knew each other. And Drabble came back thinking, I'll see that person again. And she saw her name on posters in London and she thought, oh, I know that person. And they had this wonderful conversation that's coming together. And then Lodi dies and then and Drabble sums it up what it was like to meet her. And this moment, this moment of light that went between them, this moment of connection. Oh, I should also say I have met Tastadine and she's lovely, you know, um, and, and it was so exciting to get to meet her. And I wish I had met Mazzetti and I wish, I wish to God I could have met Hepworth and said thank you. But then I go to, going to her studio and going to her garden, you feel like you have, you have met her and seeing Botti's work, you feel like you have met her and in any Room full of Tasta Dean's work, you know you are in her spirit. And with Lorenzo Mazzetti, if you if you watch those films, you're meeting her. We we meet them all the time. What what luck we have it.
0: We really do. Ali Smith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to the 64th episode and the final episode for Series 5 of the Great Women Artist Podcast with the brilliant Ali Smith on Boaty, Hepworth, Dean and Mazzetti. I am just in awe at Ali's take on all these artists, which so beautifully interweaves into her important seasonal quartet Autumn, Winter, Spring and Summer which if you haven't already read them I highly recommend and I'm sure you like me will not be able to unsee these artists' work in Ali's stunning writing all of Ali's books are available to purchase via all good bookshops and as always I have included the links in the show notes I should also add that if you would like to hear more on Pauline Boaty's life and work then do check out episode 55 of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant scholar Sue Tate this episode was sound edited by the great winnie simon and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far i would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us and of course thank you so much for listening to season five of the great woman artist podcast with me katie hessel